Welcome to Movie Heaven, Movie Hell with me, Simon Aiken, and... And I'm Keith Isles. And we're a couple of filmmakers talking about other directors' work. Absolutely. We're talking about past and present uh, work from directors. And, uh, well, I was hoping maybe for future podcasts, uh, I mean future generations podcasts, that it would be E for Isles, but... um, (laughs) <laughs> but sadly we're not there yet well no because it doesn't quite fit in the rules because uh the directors we look at have to have at least four feature films to their name well i've got a lot of work to do then haven't i unless you can do four feature films in a, in a year then maybe oh there's a challenge there's a challenge four <laughs> feature films uh in a year and two of them have to be good and two of them have to be bad there you go yeah and they have to sell worldwide and be recognized yeah <laughs> it's just a bit of work to do um anyway i jest i jest but uh <laughs> but we are on e we are so just let you folks know at home um how we do this we are going through the a to z of uh film directors and um uh, of course we're going to come across letters where there aren't many directors who's um, that we know of that start with these letters and uh, E seemed to be one of them. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Every letter we've had so far, there's been bloody dozens. Yeah. <laughs> and it's almost hard to narrow it down. But uh... <laughs> just just let you know, we, we may, we'll have to skip letters in the future uh, if we can't find directors we can talk about. Uh, and uh, so far looking at the list, X is looking like the most likely one not to have um, a podcast about it. <laughs> oh, right. Well, there's a challenge. We m- we'll have to try and find someone. <laughs> but anyway, the good news is there's plenty of directors out there. So. Yeah, we might have to cheat. We might have to say X being their first name in that, instead of their surname. But uh, Ooh, only go. in that case. But uh, well, that is in the future. Now we're going to talk about our pick three. And our pick three is... It is Clint Eastwood, and uh, yeah, I'm very, I'm very, I'm very pleased that you chose Clint Eastwood because, um, you, you know, well, as I've been with quite a few directors that we've already talked about, um, <laughs> I am also with Eastwood a, a a massive fan, I have to say. So um, yes, <laughs> you're, you're not the only one. Um, an actor I've worked with over the years, uh, Ashvin Kumar Joshi. He's a big Eastwood fan as well, and he always subscribed to uh, Eastwood's uh, way of directing, which was you only get three takes and then you move on. Ah, right. Okay. Well, whilst we're giving shout-outs then, I must absolutely mention, if if, if I'm a mega Eastwood fan, <laughs> um, my good friend and uh, actor that I know is definitely an uber Eastwood fan, and that is... Uh, ben Shockley, who's also named after Eastwood's character from um, The Gauntlet. Oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, I, I know I've, I've had many conversations with Ben over the years about Clint's career and Clint's films. And, uh, you, you, you know, when when I, I found it quite easy to pick what I was going to talk about as my heaven. But when I was uh, trying to find a, a movie hell, I did actually ask Ben's opinion on, on many things and got some very, uh, very helpful and useful um, feedback from him. So uh, a shout out to Ben Shockley, actor out yeah. there. <laughs> well, I have to say, um, when we were trying to pick, you know, films f- 
from Eastwood as a director, we sort of kept coming up against, we kept thinking that ones he had starred in, he had directed as well. Yes. And it turned out not to be the truth. So uh, we couldn't pick films like uh, Pink Cadillac because he only acted in it. Same as the Deadpool. I thought he directed the Deadpool, but no, he only starred in it. Yeah, that was Buddy Van Horn. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, sometimes that just happens because his uh, director filmography and acting filmography are just so tightly interweaved because not only does um, he appear in those films that are directed by other people, but people who have appeared in the films he's directed, his sort of um, company of actors are also appear in those films. So it, a lot yeah. of the times you'll see the same actors who were with him in any which way but loose be in films like, um, you know, uh, Buffalo Bill or Honky Tonk Man or mm -hmm. The Gauntlet. No, absolutely. I mean, um, yes, he does. Uh, you know, his, his production company, Mel Paso, which he set up in 1968 to uh, to do Hang 'em High and... Uh, you know, which was directed by Ted Post, who he'd worked with on on Rawhide and whatever. Um, you, you know, it it is fair to say that he's he's very loyal to um, his actors and and indeed his production team that he that he has around him. And and there is a lot of cross pollinization um, uh, across those. Um, but I mean, you, you know, Clint is somewhat unique. Um, in the in the directors that we've talked about so far, in the fact that that, that yes, a he, he is an actor as well, but b I mean, you know, when you look at his body of work, um, which which is very impressive, um, you, you know, whereas whereas uh, we talked about well, certainly um, Carpenter and to a certain extent De Palma, where we talked about you know how. They, they sort of had a peak in their career and then in their latter career, they sort of um, went off the boil a bit. Um, you know, that that can't be said at all for Clint. If anything, he, he goes from strength to strength. And, uh, <laughs> you, you, you know, with, with his with his work, particularly his directing work. And, um, uh, you, you know, it, it's quite amazing um, really when you look back on this and I, I know certainly from my point of view um clint is one of those um directors and, and sort of heroes growing up that that you know was well established uh you know long before i was born but um throughout my entire life growing up up until this very day is, is still you know churning out movies and um you know at least one a year and, and um you, you know it is really quite incredible so um yeah i've got a lot of respect for the man i have to say well i mean people refer to him as being very workmanlike with his films the fact that it's uh quite effort effortless the um um his directing style so you're never quite um you know it, it's not flashy it's not showy but it it but he always tells a, a really good story. Well, absolutely, most most of the time. time. Most yeah, of the time. I, I mean, I mean, I think again, something else worth pointing out when you look back on our, you know, some of our other podcasts when we talked about like the likes of of Tim Burton, for example, and, and we mentioned that uh, you know he very much had a a Burton style that was that was present sort of in in his entire body of films. You could always sort of tell it was a, a Tim Burton film. You know, at the other end of the scale, um, Eastwoods are 
all very different and very unique and 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 don't really have any sort of familiar traits um as such uh i mean even genre wise you know he's he's sort of transcended that now you know moving away from his 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 action genre which were were either you know detective um films or or westerns or war films you know and and sort of moved out to embrace so many other things you know um from biopics to musicals and and, you know and and done them all you know incredibly well um to boot so you know it is quite interesting (laughs) well i'd say the key to that is the fact that um he's sort of retired from acting so he's not in front of the camera like he'd normally be when he's directing his films so that way he can go off and do um you know different genres because you know frankly we've seen Clint Eastwood do a musical and it wasn't great uh well not with him in the musical no no I mean I was I was referring to more recently I know you're you're referring to Jersey Boys but you know I was referring to Paint Your Wagon Oh, paint your wagon. Yeah, well, you know, um, bless him and bless Lee Marvin. But, you know, <laughs> it was kind of, yeah, all right. That was that was a, that was another experiment. But I mean, that, this is the thing. He has been um, with his acting choices as well as his, um, you know, directing choices has been somewhat experimental over the years and, and you know, tried quite a range of things in there. Um, and, and, and you, you know, for, well, for me anyway, I mean, you, you know, I've obviously got a little bit of sort of hero worship for the man, but uh, I usually find something that I like in most of his movies, even the ones, you know, that, let's be honest, as an actor, he's been in some pretty bad and pretty cheesy films along the way. But there's always <laughs> been there's always been something enjoyable about them, you know, and uh, I, I know my um, my my dad uh well, I'm often I've noticed I do a lot of in these podcasts going down sort of memory lane, but that's kind of the appeal of it in some respects. But I know I know my dad is um, you know a massive massive fan of, of of westerns. You know he grew up sort of in the you know the 50s and 60s with with westerns, and um, you know he's he's I guess his hero was sort of more in the John Wayne mold, whereas um, you know he got me into westerns, but very much you know the, the, the sort of Rather than the American hero, uh, you know, cowboy like um, John Wayne was, it was more the sort of the American outlaw, anti-hero cowboy that uh, that Eastwood um, uh, uh, showed us. And uh, it, it was funny, actually. I was, I have to say, I was um, recently. I was uh, did a camera interview for um, our good friend and uh, soon to be uh, collaborator on, uh, as a sort of. Um, guest host on the podcast uh, Mike Tech and uh, I I was working on a project with him and he interviewed me and uh, uh, was you know he he sort of took me by surprise when he he asked me a question about westerns and um, you know in my usual fashion uh, just like I hate being asked or what's my favorite film or who's my favorite actor or director or whatever you know, there's so many for so many different reasons. Um, you know, he asked me about Westerns and I, I rambled on as I tend to do, like I'm doing now. <laughs> you and, ramble, uh, never. Yeah, yeah, me ramble, go figure when it comes to films. But, you know, and, uh, I, you know, I, I sort of mentioned everyone from Howard Hawks to John Ford 
to um, uh, Sergio Leone to Sam Peckinpah and all this sort of thing. I mentioned all these and I, of course, talked about Kevin Costner's Westerns, which, I, which I'm a fan of, as you know. Mm. And uh, but, uh, you know, there was no mention of High Noon, Magnificent Seven, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid or, or, or anything by Clint Eastwood. And I'm thinking, my God, we've got Unforgiven. We've got... Uh, you know, Outlawed Josie Wells, we've got High Plains Drifter, we've got all these great films that he's directed yeah, and Rider. contributed. And I didn't even, Pell Rider, yeah, absolutely. And I didn't even mention him. So afterwards I was like, oh, you know, <laughs> big mistake. Why didn't I mention that? But uh, well, that's the nature it happens, of it. isn't it? You, um, I have found that in the past that uh, if you're being interviewed, um, there's some, you, you come out and you go, oh, why didn't I say that? I missed yeah. something. Damn it. And you just, you'd love to go back and go, excuse me, wait. I've got something else to say, but you just have to let it go. Yeah, well, I do that accept. with these podcasts, and and this is where it's quite good for me because sometimes, you know, I guess we just we just go for it, and it's and it's and it's fun, and it's uh, you know, it, 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 what I like about doing this, um, whether or not anybody that's listening even gives a damn, but what what I like about doing it is it makes me revisit some of these films again, and um, you know, you know that's quite that's some of the appeal of it is a to discover new things but b also maybe to revisit things that i've not seen since you know i was a lot younger or whatever so um you know that's the the appeal and i know um in terms of in terms of film collections um you know eastwood's always been in there i remember i had uh you know what the, the films he did with warner uh they did it when, when it's on vhs a rather nice uh, Clint Eastwood collection, which I had them all, and sort of the the the, the crime movies were in uh, sort of a silvery grey matching books, you, you know, matching spine set, and then the uh, the westerns were in sort of a you, you know like a, almost like a wanted poster type uh, brownie beigey set, and uh, you, you know <laughs> they they were always in there. Unfortunately, the, the the Universal ones didn't match, which always annoyed me. But there you go. <laughs> So that's a good way to segue into our picks for Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. So, Keith, uh, what is your pick for Movie Heaven? Okay, well, my pick for Movie Heaven, uh, as I was saying at the beginning, it was it was pretty hard to pick one because there are so many good films in the directing bag for him. Um, some absolute, you know, excellent films in there. So I, I, I kind of made it easy on myself, and I went right back to the beginning so i went for play misty for me which he didn't well he, he filmed in 1970 and was released in 1971 and this was actually you know the, the first film that he directed and, and and indeed acted in as well um he was 40 at the time although you know he'd been in the business for a good 15 years or more uh, prior to that you know as an actor um, you know, starting off in B movies and then obviously going on to television with with Rawhide, which uh, I know my dad was a fan of. It was certainly before my time that, but uh, um, you, you know, and and had obviously done some work. He had set up Mel Paso, as I already mentioned, and he'd done some work with um, Don Siegel, um, who you know directed him in in uh, um, Dirty Harry, and would later go on to direct him in in. Uh, Escape from Alcatraz, etc. But um, uh, you, you know they they done uh, they done um, 
Oh, Coogan's Bluff. Coogan's Bluff, thank you. They'd done Coogan's Bluff and they'd done The Beguiled. And uh, whilst he was doing The Beguiled, he did actually make his first sort of documentary film, which was a sort of behind the scenes uh, of The Beguiled and how, you know, Don Siegel worked. And, um, you you know, this was very much then the the, uh, thing that led to him wanting to direct i mean he had he had tried to direct some episodes of rawhide um which hadn't worked out for him at the time what uh what did you what do you mean as in he was able to direct them and they didn't come out well or they just wasn't allowed no he wasn't allowed because apparently i think the story behind it uh to my knowledge anyway is one of the other actors in rawhide um and as i said this wasn't a series that i actually watched i have to say uh even though it's it's available now but um uh, one of the other actors had directed an episode that had that had gone over budget and come in late and things of that nature. So um, Clint wasn't given oh, a okay. shot to do that. Okay, because they feared the same thing would happen. Well, I mean, you know, it, it was kind of, I suppose, you know, let's be honest, it's a business and it's about money at the end of the day. So I suppose uh, they've been once bitten, twice shy, or whatever. Mm. <laughs> so so he, he never he never got the opportunity for that. And then, of course, as 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 we all know, you know, part of history, he um, he left that to go to Europe and do the spaghetti westerns with Sergio Leone, and um, obviously learnt. Well, I mean, un- unforgiven, he dedicates to Don Siegel and Sergio Leone as, as sort of being his, um, his his tutors in in filmmaking. And um, but uh, I think Don, um, Don Siegel was the bigger one. Oh, I think so. And, yes, and, no, and I agree. I'd, I'd, and I'll tell you why. Because um, when I, after uh, doing Panico, mm-hmm. um, I used to go down to the library a lot and, and borrow books. Remember libraries, kids? They got books in them. God, yes. The first book I borrowed about filmmaking was the um, biography of Don Siegel. Right. And it's brilliant. And with a foreword by Clint Eastwood, and Don Siegel just talks so much about. Um, all the all the different films he du- he did, but especially on the films he worked with Clint Eastwood. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm right in saying they did um, uh, two meals for Sister Sarah as well, didn't they? They did. Yes, yeah. that was um, uh, that was again while he was still with Universal um, yeah. at the time, and 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 they did that. And obviously, uh, and, and you know, Seagull had done some. You know some classic movies like uh, you know um, inv- he did the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers and things of that nature. So I mean he was he was uh, y- you know he he was a very very um, good director in his own right. But absolutely, I would say he was probably Clint's mentor um, when it came to filmmaking. I would say more so than um, Sergio Leone. Apparently, Clint spent a lot of time. You know on Rawhide and on some of those earlier films like, um, uh, you know, Hang'em High and whatever, which Ted Post directed a lot of, um, you, you know, watching what was going on. You know, he, he apparently wasn't the sort of actor that that once they said, OK, you know, cut, we're done with this scene, moving on or whatever. He wouldn't be the type that would sort of go back to his trailer and uh, chill out or anything. He would he would hang out on set and watch what was going on and learn and, you, 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 and, you know, um, really learn the business that way. So by the time we got to 1970, um, you, you know, and, and it was his turn to actually make play Misty for me, um, you, you, you know, he, he'd had a lot of experience on set. And 
uh, the, basically the deal was the deal that he'd made with with the um, then head of the studio at Universal at the time was uh, if he'd be allowed to um, direct this and be in this, he would uh, he would bring it in, you know, for less than a million uh, dollars. Uh, yeah, less than a million dollars. And um, he would also uh, bring it in, in in less than six weeks. You know, that was the thing. And the agreement made was that he would have to do it. You know, he wouldn't get paid a fee for directing it. Um, he would basically, you know, get a, a residual, um, you, oh, you know, from when he, the film he would did. get a fee for starring it and not directing. Absolutely, it. yes, yeah. I, that, I believe so. I mean, you know, you know, you hear these stories. There's been various documentaries and 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 you know, dozens of books about Clint's career and whatever with various uh, biographers, um, and. Uh, it, you know that seems to be the sort of consistent story there that, um, that that that's how that happened and essentially you know he made this uh in carmel you know sort of his his, his town where he where he was living uh he, he shot everything on location rather than um in studios he really wanted to get away from the whole studio look and 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 you know do everything in a much more what they called sort of a european um uh, way really again like he'd sort of seen here um sergio uh do with the, the spaghetti westerns and um uh you, you know he got this film together and he actually i think he bought it in for something like seven hundred and fifty thousand uh dollars it came in at and they they did it within five and a half weeks so you know he met his well he came in better than his than his the things he said he'd do. The, so he, he sort of promised this and, and came in lower, which is, you know, let's be honest, it usually happens the other way around, right? <laughs> in yeah. a lot of cases. A lot of cases. But then there's other cases where they have come in um, under time and under budget. The other example that springs to mind is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Spielberg Spielberg was, was yeah, very, um, very inept at it. But that was coming off the tail end of 1941. Yes, Yes, which was the which absolute opposite that it had gone over budget over time. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, so basically uh, he had this script that he, that he really liked um, by somebody he knew called Joe Himes. And uh, you know, it was called play Misty for me. It featured the, uh, the, uh, the, the jazz song Misty. And um, essentially, uh, and, and maybe this is one of the reasons I like it. Um, you, you, know, you know, like I said, I, I've learned, as I've learned more about film over the years, I've sort of learned that I liked things for various reasons that I didn't really know at the time, if that makes sense. And yeah. um, with, with this one, this is kind of unique in, in Clint's body of work because this is this is very much a, a psychological thriller. Um, it's sort of a precursor uh, to Fatal Attraction in, in many respects. And... Um, it's you know it's it's got a very um, Hitchcockian look and feel about it actually um, you know with some differences which are which are I definitely don't know. Come I to. didn't I didn't feel it was Hitchcockian um, I, right I'm coming from this because this is the first time I've watched it okay uh, I I I've heard about it, I know about it, uh, though I didn't realize there was the um, Don Segal it's not uh cameo it's uh well he plays you know, a he's a part yeah. yeah yeah but he's there like as a, a good luck token you know he's there to you know moral support definitely. exactly yeah, yeah. yeah um 
so it, it was um so watching it the first time this week um i thought it was very much it it it's very much of its time. It, it very much looks like a 60s film, even though it came out in the 70s. And it has the kind of those sort of weird um, tropes from those films where um, they take a break from the story to go and do something else, which mm-hmm. in this case was to go to a festival. Yes. Yes, the jazz festival that was uh, in town at the time. But which was really not needed. It didn't forward the story at all. You know, I... I know it was kind of say, hey, every, every, everything's, you know, because um, the stalker, who, uh, Evelyn, is sort of uh, put away at this point. She's supposed to be in a mental institute. And so I, I didn't really feel any tension in that scene, which could have been if, if, if she was out and about and they were there, you could have had a, it could have felt a bit more tension, but really right. didn't feel needed it just kind of like hey man it's the times <laughs> aren't we crazy yeah i mean i mean, I mean ov- yeah. obviously obviously clint himself one of one of his big passions in life apart from you know filmmaking and whatever is jazz you know he's he's a massive um fan of jazz and you, you know i think it was a little bit you know of an indulgence to do it um however um he did actually do something quite clever in it in so much as often, particularly with modern audiences, when you watch stuff today, but, you know, maybe even at the time, um, you, you know, foreshadowing can be can be a bit obvious and, and a bit winky sometimes and, and give things away. What he did that was that was quite clever, I thought, in that part was, um, you know, his 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 love interest in the film played by the lovely Donna Mills. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Um she one of the one of the little traits or one of the things they sort of set up early on was you know she had a she had a place on the coast in Carmel that was quite deserted that you know her father or something had left her that's right yeah and also because it was a bit isolated she had a a number of different roommates and it was always kind of the the joke when sort of um you, you know Clint's character uh, Dave Garver as he's called in the film um wants to come and stay with her but you know she's always got this roommate in town and and this sort of thing and they do set up as a throwaway line at that festival that um you you know she has a new one one roommate's moving out and another one's moving in and i have to admit you know obviously that the the twist is that turns out to be um the evelyn character played by uh jessica walter and um oh i have to say was scary really good in it yeah no, I absolutely. Mean, I mean, a- absolutely outshadowed Clint Eastwood in it. <laughs> to sort of set it up, I, I realise we've sort of gone waffling into the production without, uh, you, you know, the, the basic setup for this is, um, you, you know, Clint plays a uh, jazz radio uh, DJ. Um, he's kind of a bit of a ladies' man in this in in Carmel by the Sea, California. Um, you know, he, he's got a very impressive uh, collection of shirts, I have to say, in that film. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, enjoys his... They are very impressive shirts. Exactly. Enjoys his bachelor lifestyle. He's got a very cool pad, you know, by the beach. He's, he drives a, you know, soft top sports car. You know, he's, he's, he's kind of got all this stuff going for him. And and uh, essentially, and let's be honest, we've all been there. He, he, kind, of, he kind of meets a fan at, at a bar who you know, gets him to take her home and, and sort of says it's a it's a no strings attached one night stand. <laughs> the, but the thing was, the thing about meeting at the bar was that 
you see him uh, do his radio show and she comes on and she says the, the, the line, play Misty for me. Exactly. She's the mystery woman that keeps requesting this this song. <laughs> but So at this point, she's already stalked him because she was waiting at the bar for him. Yes, absolutely. She was under pretense that she was waiting for another guy who didn't turn up, but actually she was there to meet him. Yeah, but what's lovely so was, about it is we are yeah. with, you know, we're with Clint's character. So in other words... Yeah. You know, th- this stuff is drip fed to us in the same way as it is the character. I I know, but I I I I knew straight away that she was the same person on the phone. And as I say, I haven't seen this before, and I I knew a bit about it, but not so much. So it was it was very clear that she was that same person. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, I mean, it wasn't a surprise. Yeah, you, you know, ba- basically, she has this one night stand with him and whatever, but then you know. She becomes more and more inappropriate as, as as time goes on, you know, turning up uninvited, causing causing scenes in public, um, you, you know, all sorts of things up to the point where she actually, you know, slashes her wrists and tries to, you, you know, fake, you know, committing suicide and all this sort of thing. And, and, and basically yeah, so you get that whole emotional blackmail. Oh, and then, totally, totally. And, emotional and then she blackmail. goes berserk at the cleaner. She, she does. She thinks it's another lover, and then, uh, and of course, that gets her committed, but uh, obviously not long enough. No, no, because you know we have this. Um, I mean, you know, in this time, Donna Mills's character, who'd been away for a while, you know, comes back, and and he doesn't tell her about this this woman stalking him initially, and they sort of rekindle their love. I must admit, there is a little bit by today's standards, slightly cheesy montage which is done to the uh, song um by roberta flack the first time i ever saw your face you know and they, they sort of do this thing where they're you know you see i mean it shows all beautiful scenery of of, of you know carmel and whatever but you, you know and, and and there's a love scene and all this sort i of have thing. to and say for for eastwood that was very tender i think that's the only time in i can remember in a film of his that i saw a scene that was that tender yeah, that he was. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, he's directed other love scenes, but they always seem to be sort of functional. If you know what I mean. Again, I, d- I don't want to come too much off of Misty here, but I mean, uh, one, one film that, that he did much later in his career, but I still think it's a marvelous film was um, Bridges in Madison County when he sort of went back to a love story um, yeah. film, and you know, with with the. Uh, um, you, you know, with Meryl uh, Streep, yeah, with the wonderful Meryl Streep, and and obviously I know Spielberg and then um, Robert Redford and whatever were attached to that project initially, but you know Clint sort of took the reins at the last minute, and I think knocked out a a, a very emotional and, and good love story there. But anyway, sorry, we're getting off of. Um, <laughs> okay, getting off did of, he direct that one? He did. Yes, he did. He he directed and and acted in it. And, oh, okay. Uh, um, right. Sort of mid nineties, I think it was after yeah. Unforgiven. I know that. Um, okay. So, 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 you know, effectively, you know, we then have this this jazz festival thrown in there, which was very much sort of documentary style, you, you know, hidden camera type stuff, almost. But, but you know, we have that in the film. Um, you, you know, but then, but then, generally, the cinematography by Bruce Surtees, who who he collaborates with on quite a number of his movies. Um, you, you know, it, it's generally good. You, you know, you get a lot of the, the thriller things in there. There's lots of um, push-ins and pullbacks and, and you, you know, those, those sort of things. I mean, the, the thing I think does separate it from, from say, like 
I know you don't totally agree with me here, but like a, a Hitchcocky type thriller is 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 the fact that um, whereas those type of films usually have a very rousing score by you know Bernard Herrmann or something like that, which 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 kind of um, you know elevates the tension and 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 directs the audience to a certain extent. One of the things he does quite interesting is is even though there is a a composer for the film uh, D. Barton. Um, a lot of the, the the film in this is actually digestic music, so it's jazz music either playing in his apartment or or you know, you know on on the radio or at the radio station or whatever. And and I notice he does that over the you know particularly like the climatic scene. They're actually playing one of his his tapes back. So oh yeah, in, yeah. Instead well, of, I have to say that was a nice touch. It was, you know, that's what it I was mean. A nice instead touch. of doing the usual thing by having the sort of suspenseful score, which you know, don't get me wrong, I'm a big fan of that as well. But in this case, he chose not to do that and and go with a with something much more subtle, uh, you know, along with these horrific Im images. Okay, I I give you that because that that whole idea of um, of recording a tape which you think was for, you know, was used as a, an interview tape, which the, uh, the the woman he goes to meet that gets interrupted by Evelyn, you know, absolutely going at her because she's an older woman thinking again. That yes, <laughs> she's that's quite a funny of, uh, scene, isn't it? Yeah. You, you, really, you really feel for his character there, like, you know, I mean, how embarrassing. That's it, because it was his chance to move on and it's been ruined by this woman. Yeah. And and this tape's given back to him, and of course, then it becomes useful at the end of the film when he has to rush to um, Donna Mills' house. Yeah, well, and, I mean, but she, he she doesn't quotes... want her to know that he's going to turn up. No, even she though she's him... so, so the tape's playing, thinking that he's still at the radio station, but he's on his way there. But she's expecting him, and that's where the um, the police detective gets killed. Exactly. I mean, I mean, again, very, very well set up there. I mean, obviously, mm. she she quotes some uh, Edgar Allan Poe to him on the phone that he that he you know it, it twigs later that that's where it's from and sort of gives the clue. But then he, there's a really good um, scene that he that he directs and cross cuts where you have his character driving and changing gear, you know, to get there quickly, intercut yeah. with her. Um, slashing the the portrait of him with a pair of scissors or a kitchen knife or whatever, which I which I pair of scissors. Was, yeah. yeah, which which I thought was a really really you know nice bit of again in terms of filmmaking a nice bit of editing and a nice bit of um, you, you know um, tension creating um, there and, and 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 you know a good use of sound design as well with the you know the crunching of the gearbox and the revving of the engine along with this slashing sound as 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 she goes you know awol on his or goes mental on his postal on his um on his portrait so uh, <laughs> but um but yeah and then and then of course you, you know um very very tense very uh very um uh suspenseful uh end, end to the film um again, right now i, I have well, to stop you there just cuz yeah I watched it, it and I couldn't quite understand what Evelyn's plan was. So she cuts um, the, the characters, Donna Mills' character is called Toby, and she cuts Toby, her hair no, short to look like hers. And so the idea is, is that he would mistake her for her, that the girlfriend would be Evelyn. And that she he would kill her or something because she's tied up in bed. There was this, I was, I was just like, what? That really threw me. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit, I have to say, I agree, it's a little bit ambiguous. I mean, by this point, you know, the the woman is absolutely cloud cuckoo at this point. And she, she does make that thing where, uh, you know, I hope you look nice for him because it's going to be the last thing he sees before he goes to hell or whatever the line is. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know whether she's just planning on killing him. I mean, obviously, she goes at him with the knife. But... It just seemed to be a bit weird because if he... Um, so if Evelyn was trying to make toby look like her then wouldn't that be so that clint eastwood's character would mistake her and whatever he had in mind he would do to the girlfriend and not to evelyn yeah i, I don't know I, I mean i think i think you might be and i and i, and I get it because I'm, I'm i'm like you i always sort of analyze these things but i think in some respects you might be just slightly overthinking it because i think you know the whole thing with the scissors i and got the, the idea of her cutting the... the hair but i mean she the from what i because it happens so quickly as well, is that she did look like Evelyn, and Evelyn's in the films got darker hair than Donna Mills, so it looked like it had she had dyed her hair as well. It just it seemed very, you know, yeah, nice the fact the lights that, out. I mean, it, yeah, yeah. I, I, I know what you mean. It's a little unclear. I mean, I, yeah. I think I think a lot of it is just done to make you fear for Donna. I tell you what was clear and what made me laugh though was Clint Eastwood punching her, Evelyn, out the window. Right. Well, I've got, okay, I've, I've got some let, let, let me just, I just want to say this before you come in with your point, but I thought it was so funny because the shot is just a classic shot of Clint Eastwood punching. If you've yeah. seen the Any Which Way But Loose films, yeah. you always see that shot when he's in the fights, when he's punching straight on towards the camera. No, that, that's, that's the point I was going to make. Yeah, and I when it happened, I I had to I had to, I had to stop it because I was just laughing so much because you just see the the body fall down the cliff and into the water, and I just I just imagined you could, could you imagine it that uh, it was just like in the middle of this film you could imagine this orange orangutan turning up and Clint Eastwood going right turn Clive punch <laughs> and Evelyn flies out the window yeah. it was just like oh my god that was just so funny that is a shot that you know he uses there in his first film which which you know he uses again I mean you know it's used in 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 uh you know the dirty dirty harry film sudden impact you know that, that, that there's it, it's a shot that's, that's used quite often by him which yeah. is the and, and indeed absolutely in the every which way film but interestingly enough, the way that scene was written, okay, was yeah. actually more like the end of Halloween, because what was supposed to happen oh, as, as scripted right. was the the uh, the cop that had gone there to investigate. He wasn't actually killed by her, and what and what he did is she was attacking Clint's character with the knife and right. He was supposed to come to and shoot her off the balcony, a bit like, right. as I said, a bit like Carpenter does in Halloween. That would have made more sense. I, I have to say, Clint punching her off the out the window and down the cliff was just, it was like, what? Because it just seems really out of place with the rest of the film, because the rest of the film, it does work really well as, you know, as a psychological thriller. And Clint's character seems to be the guy, you know, seems to be the guy who, you know, he's the ladies' man, and you just really couldn't. He, he didn't look like he could punch anybody. He <laughs> was a character. That's the thing. His his character is he's a jazz DJ. You know, jazz DJs they sit around talking, smoking, you know, and making love. But uh, you know, he should be more of a lover than a fighter. 
So the whole idea of Evelyn sort of, you know, getting the best of him and attacking him and, you know, stabbing it would make more sense than, you know, uh, this sort of jazz DJ punching her so hard that she falls out the window and down the cliff. You know, it just, it just seemed to be out of a completely different film. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was a choice. And, uh, you, you know, um, for, for me, for me, I think it works, but I, I, I totally appreciate what you're saying. And it's definitely I, I know for a fact that that's definitely not how it was scripted, because, um, you know, I, I, I'd seen a, or I'd read an interview or, or, or seen a behind the scenes or something about the, um, the you, you know, the script. And I know that that was a change because um, because I remember thinking to myself, my God, it's a bit like they, they did, you know, a few years later in, in Halloween with, uh, you know, shooting Michael Myers off the um, off the balcony as, as it were. And, um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think, I think in terms of a, a first film, particularly one, I mean, you have to remember at that time, um, okay. I know Orson Welles and, and Laurence Olivier, you know, had had done this where they, where they act and star in films, but you, you know, to, to what was to follow and certainly by, by, you know today's standards it was it was a lot more rare for um you know lead actors to also direct films as well so you, you, you know and, and yes i know he had obviously don siegel um by putting him in the film you know he was there to to, to help and guide but apparently according to interviews clint really didn't need it you know he, he knew exactly what he was doing it was probably a ploy just to make the uh distribution company the studio feel safe that knowing that there's a seasoned director on the set so if anything was going to go wrong he could sort of stepped in and you know, it could have been just a ploy by Eastwood to say, you know, to the guys, just just show them, hey, I've got a safety net here. Here's Don Siegel. Yeah, quite you know. possibly. So quite possibly. If, you know, they, in their minds, they, they, they think it's going to be safe and secure because if Clint Eastwood fucks up, they've got Don Siegel on the set. They can just go, Don, do you mind taking over? Yeah, exactly. And and I mean, you, you, you know, like, like we always sort of say, whereas there are different types of, of actor out there, you know, there are also many different types of, of director, and and you yeah. know, from 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 everything that uh, that that I've read or, or or watched or listened to about Clint's career, you, you know, certainly you know from actors, it, you know, he's very much. I think you mentioned it earlier. You know, he doesn't do a lot of takes. He's he's not a Kubrick or a Fincher, you no. know, who type no. director that does that. He 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 very much trusts you know, actors' instincts and and just usually goes one or two times until they've got it and moves on. Where the the idea of the free takes came from was that um that Eastwood hated the amount of time it took to do uh, paint your wagon. It seems it it was a, a shoot that right. went over a lot and it took ages to do and you know, it. I think it just it was one of the influences on him that he just wanted to get through the shoot as quickly as possible. Hence, why letting his actors know that they've only got three takes for each shot. They got three takes, and that's it. Move on. And I guess in a way that focuses an actor to to know that I've only got these three takes. So if I don't nail it within these three takes, that's it. I'm fucked. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, there is there is no right or wrong with any of this stuff. It's just whatever works. And this, and this, you know, if I look at Clint's body of work here, you know, the, the films he's directed, it's certainly, 
it certainly works for him <laughs> most definitely so um so that's why i decided to pick play misty for me it is it is kind of a personal favorite of mine it's not one that i actually saw particularly early on um you know like i said gro growing up i was i was obviously into the uh the action films that he, he did the you know the the, the dirty harry's I, I very much enjoyed sort of comedy you know the every which way but loose films and, and things of that nature but i don't think i saw play misty for me until i was um you, you know possibly in my early 20s or whatever and um i, I remember being quite uh, quite surprised by by how different this film was and um and and you know it has kind of I've recommended it to loads of people who haven't seen it. I just say you really need to see this film because it's yeah. it's it's great. Yeah, it is certainly uh, it is it's a know. very adult film and uh you know as a kid you it would have been just boring. You, you it wouldn't have had this Yeah, yeah. Or scary. Well, not even that. It'd just be like, <laughs> oh look at the, the, the woman, she's just oh, you know. Oh, here she goes again. Oh you know, that's what she would shoot some people. Or uh Orang or, or yeah. cried punch people. It's 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 yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think you need to have been in a few relationships to appreciate, um, you, you know, uh, uh, play Misty for me to to its to its full potential. But it, it, you know, at the end of the day, it, it, it's a you know, I think a stylish thriller and you know, very unique in his body of work. But I think, my God, if you're going to, um, you know, if you're going if you're going to start off, what 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 a way to go and. Uh, you know, I do like the fact as well, as you know, I like my Easter eggs and I do like the fact that in the uh, original Dirty Harry film, you know, directed by John Don Siegel on his famous, um, you know, scene that, you know, Milius oh, wrote with yes. his, um, you, you know, do I feel lucky stuff that on the the, the, the marquee of the uh, cinema behind him has actually got play Misty for me on it. And I, I, I've always thought that's great because it's not it's not too winky, but it but it it's there, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, a hell of a, a directorial debut. Absolutely. And uh, I, I realised if, if we've got anyone listening, if we do, in fact, have anyone listening that hasn't seen the film, I realised that we've ruined it completely. But uh, still go and check okay. it out. Anyway, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's, let's move on to our next one. So, yes, your, your movie heaven is? Uh, the Outlaw Josie Wells. Yay. When I was thinking about this, I was sort of stuck between this film and Unforgiven because they're very yeah. much um, brother pieces. They're they're very much you know a sort of opposite uh, views of the western. But I decided to go with the outlaw Josie Wells because um, at the end of the day, it's a more hopeful outcome than Unforgiven is. If anything, Unforgiven mm -hmm. is very nihilistic. The fact that somebody who's yes. changed uh, goes back to his old ways because that is the only way to survive in the West. Well, in this film, it's about somebody who's been, you know, had the most horrendous thing happen to him, have his wife and kid killed in front of him when he couldn't, wasn't able to do anything about it. And goes to war and tries to take revenge on these killers. But yet at the end, this there's still a possibility of life that he could, you know, live out his days in peace while, you know, his character in Unforgiven, there's no peace for that guy. No peace at all. No, absolutely. So yeah. um, 
if you don't know the film, uh, the outlaw Josie Wells is uh, set during the American Civil War. And uh, as I said, Clint Eastwood's uh, family is killed in front of him. Quite, quite nasty. I was, I saw the certificate was 18. I'm thinking, wow, really? Still this today? And then do you, then you see that opening scene, you go, ah, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, with it, with it, with his son Kyle playing his son in the uh, in the opening scene as well. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 it is it is a fairly brutal opening um, for a film, most definitely. And then he's uh, recruited into um, is it the Marauders? Well, it's the Jayhawkers. The Jayhawkers. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, oh, actually, no. The Jayhawkers are the ones that, that that's um, no. Yeah, he's into the gorillas, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, they're he, they're the gorillas because he's chasing after the red legs. That's right. So the um, the the gang who who work for the North um, are called, known as the Red Legs, and right. they're the equivalent of the um, militia for the South, which uh, Josie Wells gets recruited for. And then you get this wonderful montage where you see uh, the war and their raids and everything, you know, compressed into the time he's there. And because he builds himself up, actually, I was going to. That's a point. You know, after you see uh, his family getting killed, and mm-hmm. you you see him um, practicing the gun, shooting the gun. That's right. Yes, you do. And you see him getting better at it, which is yeah. funny because there's there's a exact scene of in Unforgiven, absolutely, where, where he's, he's firing. You know, he's doing practice target practice with a gun and he can't fire for shit and hence yeah. why he has to go for the shotgun because he yeah, can't hit no, anything absolutely. otherwise so it, I, there's it as i say quite interestingly yeah, yeah. They, they, yeah they're very much connected these films yeah maybe he's saying that's what what um his character in unforgiven may have been that he may have been like josie wells and this is what would have happened after the end of that film yeah well i mean he has said that before hasn't he I don't believe that, but you know, but it's you could you could say that you could say that yeah. that's kind of like an unofficial sequel to the Outlaw Josie Wells. Yeah, I mean, all all of his um, all of his westerns have, have have had a lot of that theme in it. I mean, if you look at like High Plains Drifter or Pell Rider, for example, you know they they've all had this. Uh, um, well, very, very much, you know, like like we said earlier, the opposite to what sort of John Wayne. Um, was famous for with the you know with the American um, you know cowboy hero um, Clint Eastwood was always sort of the the outlaw the anti-hero um, so the, the sort of yin to the yang if you like <laughs> for, for that so yeah and, and very interesting that um, y- y- you know that that opening scene you know when he buries his his, his um, children and well it's, it's just his, his wife and child Yes, and and you know he he falls on the uh, on the cross and sort of pulls it down, crying, and you mm. know it kind of then sort of resembles the the, the Confederate um, logo. So yeah. you, you know some some real sort of imagery in there, which is quite interesting as well. So after the uh, the credits, um, it's the end of the, the Civil War. The North has won. The South has lost. And uh, you have a character called Fletcher, who's played by John Vernon, who's 
who's the leader of the militia, and he says to his men, look, let's go down to this camp. They're, they're willing you to walk away. You know, it's peacetime. Let's, you know, come with me. We'll walk away. That'll be it. That's, that's the war over. And everybody leaves apart from Josie Wells. Josie Wells, he's still looking for the red legs. He's still wanting revenge for what happened to his wife and child. And so he doesn't give up. He, do, he wants to continue fighting. So Fletcher leads his men down to uh, the northern camp. And, of course, it turns out to be a trap. It turns out that they, they massacre them because um, the politician... With a Gatling gun, yeah, yeah. That the politician yeah. there says, you know, we've won the war. Now we've got to win the peace. And they rather these guys be in the grave than be out there, which is a uh, you know yeah. ho a horrible scene. And of course, Fletcher doesn't you know he he didn't realize this. He's just been like a pawn in their game because um, you see the leader, of the Redlegs, um, a guy who's um, is it Bill McKinney? It's Bill McKinney. Yeah, again, like Vernon and McKinney, McKinney are, are frequent co collaborators of of, of Clint. That's right. Um, but anyway, yeah, so yeah, yeah, and Bill McKinney's—he's always sort of—he's either played the villain or he's like one of his gang. It's always really weird to see him as one of his gang because you—he's you, always playing the villain. Yeah, yeah. But um, so they double cross him, and of course, uh, Josie Wells comes in, and he—you know—he turns the tables on them. He starts massacring them. He gets his hands on a Gatling gun and starts shooting them. And the only person to, to survive apart from him is a kid played by Sam Bottoms, mm -hmm. who you may know from Apocalypse Now, being the surfer dude. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And very yeah, young, absolutely. especially with his little blonde tash as well. I think this was his first film, wasn't it? Ah, uh, I believe one. so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, he gets shot in the back. And, of course, you know, um, him and Josie then are on the run. And so you have Fletcher and uh, Bill McKinney's character, you know, uh, chasing after them. And you literally, you see them, it's like a series of adventures as, um, as Josie Wells starts meeting other people and affecting their lives. And some people join him, some people don't. I mean, there's, there's a lovely bit where they're, uh, a great scene where they're crossing the river and you've got one of these sort of um, oil salesmen, you know, like uh, medicine men, you know, this will cure anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he has this pristine suit. <laughs> and uh, yes. of course the, this one trait that Josie Wells has is he spits tobacco, especially when yep. it comes to the gunfights, when he, dis when he makes a decision, he spits. It's a wonderful trait that you yep. see throughout the film. And uh, <laughs> of course, he spits on this salesman. And he goes, "Yeah, does it get out stains?" Yeah, I oh, know. Amazing. I mean, again, that, that's that's you know, Clint Clint as an actor is kind of really renowned for the one-liners. For you know, because mm. uh, he's quite minimalist, but he's very known for his one-liners, and that that's definitely one of them, isn't it? Oh the, yeah, the but I mean, this, this great um, trait that he has that every you know that every time he thinks of something or he decides something, he spits tobacco. Yeah. And um, so through a series of this sort of adventures, meeting people, uh, including the um, that chief 
who when you first Chief Dan George, yes. <laughs> uh, when you first see him, he's dressed up as Abe Lincoln. And uh, he goes on about this speech about how uh, he went to Washington with the other civilized um, Indians. And uh, the, the reporters said, wow, look at you with all your suits and everything. You look, you know, you look so civilized. And they meet a politician because they're trying to get back their land because they'd gone to the Indian nations and gone through the Trail of Tears. And, uh, of course, he had lost family. There is a... There's a, a sort of thread about loss in this film because um, Chief Dan George, is, he's lost his family to an injustice as well as Josie Wells. And also um, Fletcher, he's seen all his men die in front of him and yet he's still forced to chase after Josie Wells. He says it's the only thing he can do because otherwise uh, Josie Wells is going to come after him. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, again, one of the sort of, you, you know, fairly landmark things about this film was, you, you know, it was one of the first Westerns to have a really great portrayal of the Native American characters, you yes. know, rather than them just being sort of in the back backdrop of the, the story or whatever. These these were properly rounded featured characters that, that, that you know, brought a lot of humour um to, to the piece as well which was which was quite interesting humor so, um, and uh pathos as well because uh, oh definitely because yeah. the, the other cat the other indian character um i can't remember i don't think they say her name or i think she's credited as uh, let me have a look uh little moonlight little yeah that's right yeah little little moonlight i think it is uh yeah. she's it when you first see her she's like a, a, a serving girl um that's right for this merchant and of course she's been treated really horribly by uh, these two guys uh, two trappers because they're all in furs and everything aren't they yeah and uh, of course <laughs> this is always this thing where they always they, they they see so he comes so josie will comes into the the sh ramshack shop and you know he's talking and of course he, he he's checking people out because he doesn't know if they recognize him they always do and they always try and get the upper hand of him and because it never works out for these guys they always end up getting shot um but he sort of interrupts them trying to rape this girl and so she feels indebted to him and starts following him on his uh, adventure to um to texas mm. but she's a very good character she isn't a burden she's actually uh, somebody who can take care of herself. So, I mean, she's, Absolutely. you know, the, the amount of times she um, either, you know, interrupts or saves Josie Wells, you know, she's yeah. not just a, a weak female. No, and I mean, what's quite interesting is, you know, is, is the fact that, you know, he's he's obviously a character that right at the beginning of the film loses his family. But, you know, throughout the, the course of this adventure, you know, he... he he almost like gains another family, and it, there's, again, again, there's that wonderful Clint line when he says, you know, about um, well, you may as well ride along with us. Hell, <laughs> everybody, everybody else, else is, is. <laughs> <laughs> which again is, is, a, is a great line, but um, but but you know, says a lot about that character. I think in terms of you, you, you know yeah. um, that he does have a heart and he does care about you know these people as well. So um, yeah, so, and yeah. and also. Um, the the last two people he meets is uh, Sandra 
Sandra Locke's character, mm-hmm. who uh, is with her mother. I think it's her father. Uh, her, um, her father as well, because they they they're there with two men, which get killed later when they're on the trail. When they get um, all these, uh, they're not trappers. They're like slavers or something like that. They're mm-hmm. they're gonna sell sell stuff to the uh, Cherokee. And of course, they attack the wagon, kill the two men, and of course, Sandra Locke's character is hidden away. And this is hot. I have to say, it's a really horrible scene, and I think this is why it still has an eighteen certificate. When the men find her, and mm-hmm. she's there, she's just like this petite, defenseless thing. Yeah. And the looks on their faces—you can tell that they just want to ravage the hell out of, and they nearly do. Yeah, no, that assault scene's quite it's, brutal. It's isn't quite it? rough. Yeah. Um, I mean, they, you know, it's just the way it's sort of acted out is uh, quite horrible. And then, of course, it's interrupted um, oh, by another actor who's appeared in a lot of his films. I'm trying to think who the guy is. He's He was always the leader of the Black Widow gang. Oh, yes. Yeah, I know exactly who you mean. Um, I can see his face, but I can't for the life of me think of his name off the top of my head. Uh, Is it? Carry on. I'll see if I can look that up. (laughs) (laughs) I know exactly who you mean. Is it Woodrow Um, Parfrey or is it Royal uh, Dano? I'm trying to... I don't know, actually. That's a really... God, if if Ben was here, he he would be able to tell us. I mean, Ben Ben puts... uh, Richard Schickel, you know the, uh, the the one of Eastwood's biographers and film historians, to shame with all this stuff. He really <laughs> does. Um, yeah, I'm not sure which which actor he is actually. Um, but 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 anyway, I mean, um, <laughs> that regard, <guy>. regardless, regardless, <laughs> that guy. That yes, guy. Um, yeah, he you, he. You can tell he, we're doing this live, folks. It's uh, not rehearsed. Look at this. <laughs> he comes in and he 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 stops the right because. Um, um, you know, because they they want sort of untouched, um, you know. Does he say untouched meat, unspoiled? You, you know, something like that. Yeah, unspoiled meat. I think he said that's it. Yeah. yeah, pretty nasty. Whatever. Yeah, because yeah. just gonna s- sell her on to um, the Comanches. So yeah, but um, the thing though about Sandra Locke's character is, is she is sort of the beacon of hope in it that he can have a future and have another family you know apart from the family that he's built up around him and of course they finally get to uh once they've rescued you know uh everybody else because the um uh chief dan george gets captured doesn't he? he sort of he falls down and the uh the slavers find him that's right. And so he's captured as well. And uh, Clint Eastwood comes in and saves him, comes out the sun, doesn't he? He has the sun on, on his back. Oh, I mean, there's, there's some wonderful, iconic shots yeah. in this. Yeah, um, the, the cinematography in it's great. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, again, it's the um, the same cinematographer that uh, that he collaborated with on, on um, Play, Misty. Play Misty for me, which is uh, Bruce Surtees, mm. indeed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so they Sorry. they finally get to this um, this sort of dusty old town where the the silvers run out and the boozers run out, <laughs> and uh, Josie Wells becomes their their savior to these you know people who these desperate people who have just been stuck in this dusty old this dust bowl of a town because he's got whiskey, and they think he's like the second coming. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and again, talking of iconic lines, you have the bounty hunter that turns oh, yes. up. Which, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, and he says, uh, you know, I've got somebody got to do that for a living. And it, he says, what is it? Dying ain't much of a living, boy. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, cool. <laughs> That's it. He, he gives him a chance to walk away. And of course he does. And then he comes back and he goes, I got to know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. Uh, but no, yes. No, classic, though. Yeah. So <laughs> we, uh, we get the scene where... Um, Two of the locals get captured by the Comanches, and um, Josie Wells has to go out there and and, and rescue them. Now um, he prepares everybody for a for a shootout. the uh, The farmhouse that belongs to Sandra Locks's m- mother's son. <laughs> yeah. uh, let's try again. Sandra Locks' brother <laughs> uh, is sort of uh, well fortified with having these crosses in. Um, in the windows so that they can use as gun ports so that mm-hmm. they have free movement. And so they're, they're prepared for all these Indians to come back and for a fight. But because what happens is that Eastwood goes there with, um, was it, if you can trust my, um, world word of war, you can believe my world of word of peace. I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. I think that's well quoted. Absolutely. Yeah. Because uh, he says to them that he he makes them an offer where that they can come back every year and use the land uh, for free and they'd be able to sort of kill cattle that has the Comanche mark and um, if he will let these guys go. And he says, but if you don't, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to shoot everybody here and you might kill me. And But, you know, but believe it, we're going to have a fight. So if you believe that, then believe my word of peace. And mm-hmm. you get the whole, it's really sad that the Comanche leader is a bit, um, you know, uh, hmm, harm, fork, tongue kind of Indian. Not that the, we're not the kind of Indian we're used to when it comes to um, like dancers with wolves. Yeah. You know, um, I, I, I guess at the time it was probably a lot better than the, the Indians we, they would be used to having where they're the kind of that go around, you know, go, Oh, la, 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 la. And run, dancing around in circles. I think uh, outlaw Josie Wells certainly, mm. uh, you know, changed the 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 perception of that. And then, of course, Costner, which you know, years later, took it to a whole other level. level. Yeah, but, you know, I, I won't I won't start going on about that. <laughs> That's another <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. Uh, sometimes I need I, I need to learn on these things to 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 not start going off on tangents and to stick to the subject, which is something I'm quite bad at. So uh, really, I couldn't tell. Yes, you know, I'm trying to become a better person. <laughs> so they come back and they have a celebration, and uh, of course, um, Josie Wells sleeps with uh, Sandra Locke's character, and then uh, and then sort of. Um, he has a, a bad. He has a nightmare, doesn't he? He remembers his uh, wife and son being killed, and he doesn't That's want right. that to happen to his new family. So he decides to leave, and just so happens as he's leaving, um, Bill McKinney and the rest of and what's left of the uh, Red Legs have uh, turn up, and we get the the final fight, which well, is quite an impressive fight. Uh... Yeah. Yeah, so you, you have filmmaking, isn't it? So you have everybody in the house, you know, fending off um, everybody else, and then you've got Clint on the horse firing his guns and stuff. And of course, it culminates with 
just him and Bill McKinney. And he's just literally, he's Bill McKinney, he's, he's run out of bullets. So is Josie Wells. But he still, he keeps fire he keeps pulling the trigger on the guns doesn't he and he pulls out another gun and pulls the triggers and nothing there nothing there and in the end it just comes between the two of them and of course um eastwood kills um bill mckinney with his sword doesn't he plunges the That's sword right. right into his chest killing him and of course he's injured in this fight as well uh and so he sort of goes back to the bar in town. And, of course, there's two marshals there with Fletcher. And they're going, oh, we're looking for some guy called Josie Wells. And, of course, he's standing there at the bar wondering what's going on. And the, the residents who are there call him by Sandra Locke's brother's name. And, of course, Fletcher is there. He knows this is Josie Wells. You know, he, he, he knows it, but he... But the marshals don't. And because um, Josie Wells takes this new mantle on, he's kind of like washing himself clean of everything he had done before. And Fletcher, recognising that, you know, also being a friend, knowing that he asks him, doesn't he? He says, there won't be any repercussions. And Eastwood says, no, sure, you know. I, he kind of says he's done you know mm -hmm. that he's he's done with killing and he just doesn't want you know he's he's had his revenge he's had his justice yeah. and it doesn't need to be anymore now they've all died a little in that war i think it yeah. was one of the comments he makes or something or words to that effect That's, anyway yeah. yeah 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 so the uh marshals get sent down to mexico because that's where the guy says he saw him yeah saw his dead body actually so so Josie Wells is is no more, and um, he becomes another character, and probably yeah. to to live out the rest of his days in that uh, that dust bowl. <laughs> yeah, so it it actually ends on a bit. It's, of hope it, it's it, a very positive note, as I say. Yeah. It's a lot more positive than Unforgiven. Yeah, um, yeah, and I mean, and also yeah. a lot more. Um, you know, it, it is a little bit more rounded character than. Than, than he played in some of the earlier westerns, like the you know the spaghetti westerns, etc. As well, yeah. Um, it's fair to say, yeah. But, but spaghetti I mean, westerns are different beasts. They're completely yes, they are. different beasts. Wonderful in their own way, absolutely. <laughs> but um, uh, you know, some some sort of interesting production backstory on this is obviously it was from a novel uh, by Forrest Carter. Yeah, it's called Gone um, I think to it was Texas. Called Gone to Texas. Yeah, and uh, although I think it was originally called The Outlaw Josie Wells, and they changed the title or something. So there was there was something about the title I can't remember now. But um, that would uh, make sense because it, it um, that they because it, it's weird that um, they didn't use the the title of the book for the film because The Outlaw Josie Wells is so much better suited to it than Gone to Texas. Gone to Texas. Sounds like a wagon train film. <laughs> it doesn't sound yeah, like, yeah. A, you know, uh, somebody who's who's gone out for revenge and then sort of re not redeems himself, but f finds that there's hope at the end of the tunnel and that 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 this path he's on didn't just lead to his death. No, no. I mean, I think I think uh, again, I may be wrong on this, but I think the book was originally sent to Clint or recommended to Clint by. 
his good friend Burt Reynolds, I think this was one of the book books that was recommended. But um, but when he got it, obviously, um, Philip Kaufman was brought on board to uh, do the screenplay yes. and, and, and to work on some of the elements. And initially, um, Philip Kaufman was actually brought on to direct the film as well. Oh, okay. um, but, but very early on, like within the first week of principal photography, um, there were various creative differences between Clint and um, Philip Kaufman, which, which um, uh, basically forced them to fire Philip Kaufman from the, um, from the film. Uh, and it brought in some sort of new rule with the Directors Guild of America because, um, you, you know, Clint Eastwood was obviously the producer of this film as well as the star of it and obviously ended up directing it. And I think in order to protect directors, they made some change to the DGA law following this film. Um, which is, you know, quite interesting, I okay, think, in itself. I didn't know that. But, uh, yeah, so, um, uh, you, you know, because let's be honest, it is one of, I know it's it's one of um, Eastwood's favourite films that he did. It's not, it's, you know, he has a list, again, again, a bit like when you ask me, you know, it's impossible to, to name one favourite, but I know he's got a list of them, and this is in that list, Um so 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 yeah, it ended up being quite a um, quite a successful film uh, for Clint Eastwood in a time, you know, nineteen seventy six, a time when you know the western wasn't um, you know that popular. It had kind of dropped out, you know, after the sixties. So um, uh, and I remember iconography wise, the poster is one of those images that, that of Clint that's that's always been around, you know, that wonderful poster with him holding the, the two, the two six-shooters, yeah. yeah, which is amazing. And, of course, the scar, the, the Josie Wells scar oh, down, yeah. his, down his face. I have to uh, say, makeup-wise, that was really well done. Uh, I, the way they applied the scar and then the way his beard grew around it, it was, yes. it was spot yeah. on. Absolutely. No, absolutely. It didn't, didn't look that fake at all. <laughs> <laughs> no no absolutely it was it was it was uh you know I, i'm kind of glad you picked it because because i think it's a great film and mm. um you, you know it, it's definitely like i said it's really hard to look, look through his body of work it was really hard because there are so many other great films that could have picked like unforgiven or uh invictus is another one that springs to mind i was just i was remembering something that you said on a um on the carpenter one that sort of sprung a memory of for me as well is um you know obviously i would love to meet clint eastwood and i'd love even more to work with clint eastwood but i have actually been in the same room as clint eastwood because ah. i was fortunate enough um in 90 uh, sorry in 2003 when um uh, mystic river was out the bfi they did a um, a screening of that but they also uh had a, a sort of not q and a as such but a sort of life interview um, with Clint, okay. and uh, uh, I was lucky enough to get a ticket um, to go to that, and uh, you know, was absolutely fascinating to to, to hear the man. Because because again, when these these interviewers, and it was someone quite big who interviewed him, I think it might have been like Parkinson or somebody like that. But um, you, you know, they, they often ask or, or try and be sort of clever and ask questions about you know the political stance of some of his films and in, in society and all this sort of thing and i remember oh, okay. when they got on to uh, dirty harry you know and they were saying about it and he turned around and said 
hey, I just thought it was a good detective story, <laughs> which which is the thing I love about Clint, because it's always about the story. Yeah. It always goes back to, is it a good story? And, um, and uh, you, you know, obviously in, in the case of that, um, you, you know, it, it was a very good story. So uh, yeah, it was. But let's let's now go on and talk about some bad stories. So, Keith, what is your pick for movie hell? Yeah. All right. Well, I, I did have a hard time with this because, um, you know, I, in terms of films, it's very easy to pick out some bad films that he's acted in. Um, but but when you look at his, his body of directing work, um, pretty much with everything, there's always something I like, you know. So what what I, what I did was I, I picked one that um, I think for various reasons that I'll go into doesn't quite work although this is not to say that i absolutely hate it all right and that was uh the film sudden impact which was the fourth out of five dirty harry films and the only one that eastwood actually directed okay yeah. it was made in made in 1983 now when you said this film um i swore i hadn't seen it I, I was right. oh, I haven't seen this one. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to watch it and, you know, see what it's like, you know? And I, then I realized I had watched it. I just forgot it. Mm-hmm. And I have to say yeah. that is his problem is that it's just a really unforgettable film. Right. Uh, well, or forgettable rather than unforgettable, but yeah. Unforgettable. That's what you aren't. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Now, I mean, the th- the thing is, here's here's the thing. Let, let, first of all, let's give a little bit of backstory context as to okay. this. All right. Um, Eastwood originally was going to direct the third Dirty Harry film, which was The Enforcer in 1976. Okay. okay? However, um, he was still very much tied up with post production on uh, Outlaw Josie Wells. So he, he actually didn't do that. And what he did is he promoted his um, assistant director, again, a very loyal move of him to, to, to be the director of The Enforcer. So um, he produced it and he obviously acted in it, but he didn't direct it. And essentially, and I mean, there are people a bit like when you when you talk about um, other series of films, maybe the, one, one that springs to mind uh, you know, the, the Indiana Jones films, a lot of people think, yeah, there are only really three of them because they don't count uh, <laughs> the fourth film. Oh, right. And and there, there are a lot of people that think that the Dirty Harry series was, in fact, a trilogy. <laughs> and that's I don't originally blame what it was because, intended. Um, I, I originally wanted to pick for movie hell uh, Deadpool. Yes. But it wasn't directed by Clint Eastwood. And I no, it wasn't. for ages he had. Yeah, no, I mean the the Deadpool. I mean that's 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 another story. I mean the Deadpool. Uh, it's fair to say that Sudden Impact is definitely a better film than the Deadpool. Yeah, um, but not as fun. However, the Deadpool is a lot more fun. I mean, especially the cameos of Gu- of Guns and Roses and uh, Jim Carrey <laughs> in there. You know, I mean, it it, it yeah. seems to be having a lot more fun. And Liam Neeson and Liam Neeson. But I yeah. have to say, the structure wise, very similar. To, to the point where, so Harry Callahan is on a case, which is a, a mob-related case, but that's not the right. main thrust of the story. It's this other no, case no. that's happening. And let, it, let's... it's the same thing that happens in Deadpool. And I thought that was very yeah, interesting. No. Absolutely. I mean, again, so so some context here. 
he didn't he didn't do the third film and essentially that was going to be it so that was you know the, the the enforcer was in 1976 okay and obviously this film didn't materialize to 1983 mm. now what's quite interesting is the reason that this film was made okay okay um this was around the time that warner brothers were looking to do um Sean Connery had approached them to try and do the, the remake of Thunderball, which would later become Never Say Never Again. OK, and, and it, this came out the same year you had the Battle of the Bonds. You had um, Octopussy and, and, and Never Say Never Again. Okay. Now, what had happened is in order to sort of give Never Say Never Again the green light, they did a Warner Brothers did a survey to see um, what the reaction would be to actors of a certain age, in other words, actors in their 50s, um, bringing back roles uh, that, that made them famous or, or, or characters that were, you know, were well known. And um, they obviously did conducted this about James Bond. But interestingly enough, the feedback that came was that people would be very keen to see Clint Eastwood do another Dirty Harry movie. OK, so. Um, what had happened was uh, Clint had, at the time, uh, he'd done a couple of other um, more personal films. He'd done, uh, you know, Honky Tonk Man, for example, which is very personal to him because it was about, you know, it took place in the Depression era that uh, that he remembered and, you know, it centred around music and things of that nature. But it had not been a, a commercial success. And he'd also done Bronco Billy uh, just prior to that. Okay. But so he really needed a hit. He needed something, uh, you know, a box office um, piece for it. So it was agreed that he would do another Dirty Harry film. OK, however, and this is where I think Sudden Impact probably doesn't work because of this reason. Originally, Sudden Impact was uh, or, or the film that became Sudden Impact was going to be a Sandra Locke vehicle. OK, and it oh, was okay. not going to be a Dirty Harry film at all. And. What happened because of this and because, you know, um, uh, Warner Brothers, you know, Clint wanted to make some other pictures that were that were going to come out shortly after. But, you know, agreed to do this and agreed to direct and, and reprise his role of Harry Callahan. But the reason I don't think it works and, and I watched it. In fact, this time I was actually prepared the last few podcasts. I've made sure I've watched all four films that we're talking about. And I did go back and watch um sudden impact in fact it's really good it made me i've had the uh the dirty harry films on on dvd special edition for years right <laughs> but this actually made me go out and finally upgrade to the blu-ray set which is amazing right okay. so um so i went and treated myself uh to that and and watched sudden impact and you know the the it's there's a lot of good things in the film there's there's some you know there's definitely some great iconography um you know there's the bit where uh you know clint is backlit and holding the the auto mag and oh yes you, you know which is uh, yeah, a classic yes. image yeah classic image which, it also it also again it was it was very reminiscent of a, a similar shot near the end where he's got a, um, a harpoon gun uh at the end of deadpool Oh, in Deadpool, yeah, 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 uh, just <laughs> taking up a notch, uh, you know, as if, as if the auto mag wasn't powerful enough. <laughs> no. to up a notch again. So, but yeah, I mean, um, so so 
you, you know, it had some great iconography in it. It, it also, you know, it's, it's famous or infamous or however you want to look at it at, um, at being the, the iconic phrase as well, because this is actually the first film where he uses the phrase, you know, go ahead, make, make my, my day. day yeah. uh, okay, which obviously became very popular in the Reagan era with, you know, it being quoted by Ronald Reagan and things of that nature and, and sort of, you know, ha- yeah. haunted Clint for years afterwards. I must admit, I do, I prefer the original one, which is the one that gets mangled up with this, is the Do You Feel Lucky? Yeah, the, yeah, the John Millionist lines. Yeah, that he yeah it is much better film, yeah. than uh, Go Ahead, Make My Day. Indeed, indeed. But still, it's still an iconic, you know, line. The the thing the thing on watching it that I thought was the problem with this film mm-hmm. is it does almost feel like you've got two different things going on. That's the, right. The, the stuff involving Harry, okay, the scenes involving Harry are actually very amusing. In fact, you know, I, I really was quite amused watching it. Um, you, you know, it's almost as if he's doing a path pastiche of dirty harry you know it's almost like he's poking fun at himself you know as this now older grizzled angry um cop you know but th- th- there's some great bits there's a there's there's an amazing scene in in uh the elevator of the the, the courthouse following uh you know court where he basically has a go at, at, at a young punk that uh that mouths him off. Yeah. Do you recognise who 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 played that character? Because I was looking at him, I'm going, where do I know him? Where do I know him? It's the same guy. Looks out of Full Metal Jacket. Oh, there you go. Okay. So, um, but but you know, so there's that. Immediately following that is the, although quite silly, still loads of fun. The the scene where he goes to get the coffee and uh, she oh, puts yeah, loads of sugar, sugar in his coffee, yeah. and and he ends up you know, blasting them all and, and, and dealing with that. So then there's that. Then there's the scene where basically, you know, he, he mouths off about his, his partner um, eating a hot dog and, you know, says that you should never put ketchup on a hot dog. So there's, yeah. there's, there's all these, there's all these bits. And then of course there's this bit later in where, where his friend sends him a, a, a meathead, the dog. dog yeah. Um, but the thing is, you've got that, which is all quite sort of tongue in cheek and humorous and, and, you know, works quite, quite well on that level. But at the same time, the, the Sandra Locke story is actually, you know, in terms of violence against women and rape and all of this thing, it, it's, it's horrific. Her, her backstory is, is, is quite horrible and quite, you know, graphic and, and quite nasty. So it's weird that you've got these it feels like it's sort of two different movies that that are running concurrently but don't really gel together particularly well so you, you know that that's that's kind of my issue and the reason i've sort of picked this is the one that i think doesn't really work overall is because you've got this 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 brutal revenge story with sandra Locke with this sort of dirty harry almost poking fun at dirty air and there's loads going on in this because you've got you've essentially got a, a a mob boss that he assaults earlier in a film at a wedding uh which is quite funny yeah you've got he, the he harasses him, him and then it, you know he has a heart attack and he's exactly. like, how did you, i know he had a heart problem yeah exactly and you've got the shitheads from the court at the beginning that that you, that, you know try and uh try and kill him and have a go and so you've got these things going on but yeah. then at the same time you've got this horrible serial killer you know, revenge story where Sandra Locke basically hunts down the people that that uh, 
raped her and her sister, leaving her sister in a sort of comatose state in, a, in an asylum um, that, that she hunts down years later and, and, and basically, you know, shoots the, the, the balls off of before, or shoots them in the genitals before shooting them and mm. killing them. That's right. uh, and you've got this revenge story going on um, and these sort of fairly graphic flashbacks um, going on. So, you, you know, one of the reasons I think it doesn't work is it, is it does it does sort of feel like it's it, it's two different things. The other thing that really annoyed me with the film and it was kind of this was the the sixth film that um, and the last one that, that uh, Eastwood and Sandra Locke made together. Obviously, they met on on outlaw no, Josie, Josie Wells, Wells and yeah. had a and 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 and, and became um you, you know uh partners and lovers at that point and had a relationship that ended very bitterly shortly after um sudden impact very bitterly i did actually i was, I was wondering if we should if we should touch upon that because um it was one of those things where i, I had to do a little bit of research because i knew something had happened they'd split up but i didn't realize how sort of um not badly but it was just harmonious yes uh and the fact that sandra Locke has taken clint eastwood to court quite a few times because she feels that he undermined her with warner brothers as a whole deal talk about she had a deal with warner brothers she had a film deal yeah but he had organized as part of their sort of separation and um she felt that there was some sort of um sort of secret deal between eastwood and warner brothers that stopped her from making the film she wanted and then just start now you telling me the story about how originally this was going to be a sondra lark a sondra lock vehicle and it became a harry callahan film sounds very much you know like she she had a reason for that because that's that's what it would sound like to me with what happened with this film yeah i mean yeah i mean it's kind of i i I don't know i mean i I really you know and and again there's there's loads of um biographies and material out there that that sort of outline you know that their relationship and whatever but i mean you know i i think i think she'd done quite well actually off the back of eastwood (laughs) you know with that string of movies because certainly in this i don't think she's the greatest um you, you know, by any means in this film. Um, but the, the the thing that they did that really annoyed me in this film was they had, you know, Callahan and her character end up sleeping together, you know, and having like a sexual relationship, which yeah. to me wasn't a dirty Harry thing at all. You know, all we know of Harry's backstory was he'd lost his wife some years earlier, but he, he wasn't really, you know, he wasn't the character from Play Misty for me. He wasn't a womanizer type hero. He was, yeah. he was, you know, quite, quite cut off. So the, the fact that they had to have a scene where they slept together, which I guess they did to try and make the end where, you know, he, he let to get away with it sort of yes. thing pay off. But, it, you know, to me, that felt unnecessary. So that that was a scene in there that wasn't that wasn't needed at yeah, all. It was, I, it was. Yeah. I mean, the, the, uh, I have to say, I, I found it really distasteful that she got away with it. Yes. What happened to her was really awful, really awful. But just to let her get off scot free seemed to be uh, distasteful in, in in my opinion. 
I mean, so you have this character called Kruger, who I know it's not played by the guy who played the Riddler, but he looks a lot like him. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was expecting to say, Riddle be this, Harry Callahan. Yeah. No, um, but... You know, so he's, interesting he, that Jim Carrey was in the next film. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yes, <laughs> they're all connected. They're all connected. No. My point being that uh, you know they they have this character who is the nasty of the nasty, and it's not just the fact that you're quite happy to see him get killed uh, by Harry Callahan, you know, who swoops in and saves Sandra Lock there at the end, but um, also the fact then. He gets all the killings pinned on him as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you kind of have in this film as well, you know, you have a sort of uh, a bit of a gratuitous nude scene, which um, I must admit, I always thought was great when I was younger, um, you, you know, in the hotel room, but also followed again by one of the best lines ever where the uh, where this scumbag basically offers the uh, answers you know pushes the prostitute to one side and answers the phone and just says who the fuck is this <laughs> which 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 I, which I always thought was you know another one of those sort of laugh out loud yeah. type of lines yeah. um but uh you, you know you know and of course you've got the foul mouth woman you know in the gang as well which uh which, which again is is kind of kind of amusing on one hand but uh, obviously what they do is kind of horrible so you end up with this yeah you know, I, I feel it's a bit of a confused film also, actually um, they also refer to her as a lesbian which yeah, in yeah, my well, mind is like no I, if she was a lesbian she wouldn't be for she wouldn't be into that at all she no. wouldn't be into hey let's invite these girls over so you can rate them yeah well, that's one of the things that kind of ages it by today's standards, isn't it? But yeah. I mean, but you know, there's, there's, I mean, there's a load of good things. I mean, it, it's definitely not a badly made film. It looks great. Again, it's Bruce Surtees on cinematography. They brought Lalo Schifrin back to do the music on this because he wasn't available when they did um, The Enforcer. So it, it's kind of brought it back to the, you know, uh, originals from the, from the first two Dirty Harry films. Uh, and again, he, you know, he surrounded himself with a lot of his, his usual actors. Um, you get Albert Popwell playing, uh, you know, his, his mate in this film, which is kind of interesting because he was in all of the films bar uh, Deadpool, but played a different character in every single film. Oh, that's right. Because he's the he's the punk in the first one he, where he says the iconic exactly. line. And he's the one who goes, I gotta know. Gotta know. Absolutely. Gotta know, um, yes. But, but so, so there's that. But the other thing that he did, which was really weird in this, I mean, that's some great, you know, again, you had uh, Pat Hingle in this, uh, but you also had Bradford Dillman. But this is odd, right? Bradford yep. Dillman was playing a different character to what he played in The Enforcer. But I find that weird because it was practically the same, same character. character. So oh, I, okay. I don't understand mm. why they made it a different character sort of from a continuity point of view. I that, that that's yeah. sort of bugged me a little. I have to say, I just I just want, as you mentioned, Pat Hingle. Uh, I thought his character was was a bit because he's he's the one protecting the gang because his son is, was yes. one of one one of the rapists, but yet his son had already he he'd done something to himself that just crippled him, wasn't it? I can't 
remember yeah. what it was. It, it wasn't that clear what the guy he'd did ran, to himself. Well, he, he'd, ran, he'd, 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 he'd felt guilty. Yeah. And apparently he he tried to sort of kill himself by driving into a wall or something uh, that instead right. ended up like uh, sort of in a, again, a bit like the sister of um, uh, Sandra Locke's character, you know, being in a sort of... Um, Vegetated y- state, y- you know, yeah. Near comatose. Yeah, yeah. Ex- exactly. And... Um, uh, you, you know, and again, you, you know, this is like a, this is just shy of, of, of two hours, this film. And it's got a lot of padding in it. You have, again, for the laughs, you have one sort of thrown in chase scene when he goes to a small town, which essentially is Carmel, but they, they've named it something else. Mm. And he ends up chasing a a um, a bank robber. Uh, yeah, just out of the blue. Retirement bus, yeah, exactly. It, it offers nothing to the story, but it, it you know, it's quite amusing. But it offers a again, laugh, but yeah. It's just, yeah, yeah, it just offers a laugh. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's the problem with it. The reason I've chosen it as the movie Hell thing is, you know, there are a lot of things I love about it. I love the Dirty Harry films, it certainly isn't the worst Dirty Harry film in the series. Um, but you know, and there's a lot of you know, there's some great actors, there's some great iconography. Um, you, you know, it's great to see Clint back in this one. He wears the the gargoyle glasses, which obviously became famous in in the Terminator, the first Terminator film. Um, you, you, you know, and, and there's a lot of good stuff you've got as well as the 44 Magnum. You've got the Auto Mag, um, and you've got the you know the scenes with that. But there's yeah. some you know there's some bad there's some bad continuity things going on, um, and it's very confused as to as to yes. what it's trying to be. So that's totally. that's it's essentially all over the place, yeah. it is. It's, yeah. it's a bit of a mess. So that's why I um I chose this one as the one that I think doesn't really work in his in his uh, portfolio of, of of films. Um, and as I said, you know, there are some good bits. There's some iconography, um, and uh, y- you know, it's it's enjoyable to a certain extent, but um yeah it's just kind of it, it it was almost like a film he did to to sort of get the green light to to move on to some other projects like tightrope for example which was um you know a bit a bit more left field um and uh you, you know it, it it just it just had that feeling of that and also Sandra Locke I'm not sure whether she was necessarily the best actress for that role but of course you know she was in it by default because of yes. you know whatever deal she had going or the fact that they were in a relationship or whatever but i definitely don't think harry callahan should have um slept with her character i thought that was you know no. completely uh out of it really um but uh but you know interestingly the next film we directed after this was pell rider so oh. um <laughs> you know with with warner so yeah, yeah. um so yeah that that's 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 uh that's my thoughts on that i mean there's a lot more i could say about it but we literally will be here all night so yes uh... <laughs> yes and uh personally i just want to get through my one yeah because uh as as bad as sudden impact was it couldn't as be as bad as the film i've picked mm-hmm. which i would have picked if you hadn't have already uh <laughs> elected that one <laughs> uh unlucky me eh? uh yes so uh my pick for movie hell is the rookie the rookie 1990 yes with charlie sheen oh Indeed. my god this film is a clusterfuck of a film <laughs> all right well again 
let, let, let's give it some context here. This, this oh, is okay. coming L- off the back of the Buddy Buddy movie with Tango and Cash and Lethal Weapon movies. Right. I, I have. Right? Now, I, I read this. I read this. Um, if, this was like part of his deal for being able to make. Um, oh, uh, what's, what's the film? Um, White Hunter Blackheart. White, White Hunter Blackheart. Thank you very much. Um, yeah. He, he was able to make that film. Because he he's I guess it was the deal deal was made that he could make that film if he would make a buddy cop film afterwards, which was the rookie. And it does feel like he is just doing it as like a favor because it's uh, it's not very good film. It's really bad. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so you have uh, Charlie Sheen, who's a rookie. And he's decided to join the uh, car theft squad. And at the same time he starts, Clint Eastwood uh, is has his partner killed by uh, Raul Julia. He's a great actor, let's be honest. I know, wasted in this film. He is absolutely <laughs> terrible in this film. He is not given much to do. And uh, he, I don't know, is he Mexican, Colombian? I really don't know. Uh, it's not quite clear who he is, but well, he's he calls part him of a crowd at one point, doesn't he, Clint? When he's when, yeah. when he's basically having a go at Clint about being a Polak or whatever, he 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 says something about, well, at least I'm not a crowd son of a bitch or, or something. And something I was like, like that, really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> and so um, yeah, so he's his gang of. They look like well, they're, they're all played by Mexican actors. <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, they're they're stealing uh, sports cars to order, and they're putting them onto a transporter. And of course, Clint Eastwood's partner gets killed, and then you have this car chase where they're throwing cars off the back of this transporter at him. Or and he drives. Yeah, let me on just jump and- in. Let me yeah. just jump in, though. Some great stunt work with that. When you think this wasn't like Bad Boys 2, where most of it was done with CGI or whatever. This was real stuff, and it was pretty good in terms of action, not in terms of story, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so um, Charlie Sheen walks into uh, his first day on the job into this, you know, and there's this whole it's played for laughs where Clint Eastwood's like, Hey kid, uh, you know, out you go kind of thing. And his Lieutenant saying, Hey, this is your new partner. And he's like, what? I don't want another partner. You know, I'd rather be yeah. out there on my own. I need to nail this guy. And it's like, no, it's a murder case. Now you can't touch it. you know, the, the usual, um, chief and cop conversation. And, uh, and of course yeah, it's very cheesy. It's very cheesy. And of course Eastwood, as he's leading his pop new partner out, you know, is like everybody's making jokes and of course they end the film with uh charlie sheen's character going through the same thing with a female partner and i i remember yeah, when i first saw really this as a forced. kid i thought yeah. it was his wife i thought bloody hell his wife's joined up after everything that happens <laughs> i was like but no right, it's, right. A di- it's a different character but it was just so so throwaway and just couldn't care you know Yeah, I mean, I mean, you you know, in this one, Eastwood's kind of a lot more sort of jovial character than 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 you know, like the the um, 
the Callahan character, but yeah. he's kind of like a whiskey drinking, cigar chomping. He, what he's doing is he's chase. He's sort of turning up where Lord Julia is, and you know, making his presence being known. You know, you know, he, he go. Lord Julia's having a meal, and of course, he just turns up and starts, you know, you know, annoying the hell out of him. And and then there's a whole thing where they, um, he gets an informant from uh, within his gang. And he starts raiding his sort of um, uh, chop shops, and there's this whole uh, press interview where um, there's no way this interview would <laughs> ever be aired. It was like I know, I know, you know it's, it's like uh, I've, I've got God your knows how many times. yeah, I've got <laughs> your fucking cars, your fucking money, and now you, you must be pretty pissed off. I mean, we're having a good fucking time. It's just like what? And of course, yeah, yeah. Well, Julia does the thing where he kicks the TV. <laughs> just like yeah my god this is just going it's like paint by numbers yeah uh. no it, it is it, it is a point i mean you mm. know there, there are little bits that do make me laugh like i love the argument over the donuts and stuff you know mm. but it's but it's typical yeah you know buddy buddy banter yeah. this whole thing banter. where um eastwood throws a punch and charlie sheen catches it which they do <laughs> a bit later on when it's, the roles are reversed and uh, Charlie Sheen is now the hard man, and uh, Clint Eastwood's the one who's in sort of dire straits. So yeah, they um, so Charlie Sheen's character is supposed to be top of his class, yet he's absolutely uh, witless, useless, scared, and has no idea. Well, he has a ghost, doesn't he? That they set up at the beginning, yeah. you know. With... This dream sequence at the beginning, which is when when you first think you think. Wow, this is badly shot. <laughs> He's got, why do you want to join, um, you know, Grand Theft Auto? And, uh, and uh, he's like, oh, I've always been interested in bikes and cars. And he says some term which the guy goes, excuse me? Just, yeah. And um, yeah, yeah, you just go, wow, this is really badly framed. And then you realize it's a, a dream sequence. He's like, uh, have you ever any? Have you got anybody killed? No, you're lying. And then yeah. flashback to when he was younger, when he made his brother jump and he fell and all this stuff. And so you know, so you you find out that Charlie Sheen's, you know, he comes from a rich family, and uh, Tom Skerritt's plays his dad, and he's trying to get um, Clint Eastwood's character to sort of protect Charlie Sheen because you know he's. You know he needs protecting from all the bad guys out there, yeah. which I have to say was probably quite true because <laughs> they they come up with this plan to um, to capture Lord Julia and his girlfriend, um, this sort of really sort of tough looking woman who you know she does a lot of the killing. She's like you know Beauty and the Beast all wrapped up in one. I think when they they. Um, they first see a, him, Clint Eastwood and his partner sort of make some joke they about Don't make them like that, that anymore, anymore or something, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> and, and he goes, uh, you're not talking about the car, are you? And he says, the car and the woman. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's so, very cheesy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's some good people involved in this film, but it yeah. was almost like they were just having a laugh, really, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so, you know, they, they set up this plan to capture them at a casino that they're going to rob and they hide in the in the safe. And the uh, the guy who owns the casino, who probably is mafia, is just like, you know, 
here you go, Clint. I'll, I'll just be off now. <laughs> Take these guys down. And, of course, Charlie Sheen fucks up. He wasn't winning that day. He wasn't full of tiger blood. I'm getting these out of the way because you can't do a Charlie Sheen podcast without saying these lines now. It's contractual. <laughs> I have the contract in front of me. It must mention winning tiger blood. <laughs> you have they have to have those two in there. Yes, indeed. And he gets he gets shot in the back, and and the, the other cops give him a, and give him such a hard time about this. Or you got shot in the back, hey kid? Well, you're not protecting your partner. Boom. And so they come up with this harebrained scheme where they ransom Clint Eastwood's character for $3 million. I think so. Raul Julia wants to get out of the country. <laughs> He's had enough of Clint Eastwood. He just wants to get out of the fucking country. <laughs> you know, and instead of putting a bullet through his head, he just decides to ransom him. Oh. Yeah, I know. Yeah, just shoot him, for God's sake. The city doesn't want to pay up. They want to, you know, you know. They're not going to give in to terrorists. So um, Charlie Sheen goes to his dad and gets the money. But this is after Charlie Sheen gets hard, doesn't he? He goes to a bar and he burns it down. And then he, you know, he's, he rides the motorbike, doesn't he? Or whatever. Yes. Yeah. This motorbike that only he could get started. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then there's a the whole thing where... Um, one of Raul Julia's minions um, turns up at his house pretending to be uh, his lieutenant. And, you know, it's sort of this whole thing where Charlie Sheen has to get back in time to save his wife. But, you know, um, his wife's doing all right, actually, <laughs> without him. Wow, it's up to a point. And then he comes crashing through with the motorcycle. And... But she ends up shooting him anyway. And then, of course, you get that awful scene where the uh the uh the the the, the, the femme fatale woman oh, basically yes. rides clint and makes him bite this bullet while he's doing it or something yeah and he goes she was not sitting on my face <laughs> <laughs> while filming it just to get a rise out of raw jury this this just didn't make any sense because this comes into play later when uh charlie sheen's found the warehouse which they're now going to blow up with Clint Eastwood in it because they're going to get their ransom. I said, put your seatbelt on. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, there's a shootout happens and the uh, VCR starts playing and just happened to be at the bit where Clint Eastwood's um, being ridden. <laughs> and, of course, Raul Julia looks a bit perturbed, but that's about it. You know? Yeah, it didn't it, really make any sense. It didn't make did any it? sense. It, it did like... have no effect on the story. You know, yeah. he, he doesn't turn around and shoot the girlfriend or anything, which is what you would expect would happen. And, of course, then you've got the scene of them driving out the bin building as it explodes, which was, yes, it was a hell of a stunt, but it just, again, makes no sense at all. Now, it's a bit silly. Yeah. They do it in a convertible, I mean, you know. It's, it's <laughs> kind of... Yes, we, we've seen what happens when... Uh, people are you know who near explosions they burn yeah. <laughs> look look what happened to harvey Dent. Yeah, i mean it 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 it's it, it's pretty bad and and, yeah. and 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 obviously the like you said the the end which is you know obviously a um a nod back to the beginning but it's yeah. it's it's very cheesy the way it's done yeah very uh, very winky the the final shootout in the airport 
where they, they've, they've taken out the uh, Learjet that they were going to escape on. Yeah. And <laughs> and then they, they chase Royal Julia and the girlfriend through the airport, having a shootout while people are, you know, waiting for their luggage and stuff like this. And, of course, Clint Eastwood's character gets shot. Well, they both get shot, but Clint Eastwood looks like he's been shot fatally and he does the whole, you know, at the end when they're having a, a cigar and stuff and, you know... Charlie Sheen didn't bring a lighter. Stupid boy. Yeah. What was it? What was it? He says to Roll Junior, there's probably a hundred reasons why I shouldn't do this, but I can't think of one. Because <laughs> he takes the because the girlfriend and him both have the silver bullet round their their necks. I think that was probably what perturbed Raul Julia's character when he saw her riding him and he had the bullet in his mouth. And of course, he plucks this bullet off from around Royal Julia's neck and uses that to kill him. And you go, okay, <laughs> okay. And then you get yes, that line about a uh, hundred reasons, but I can't think of any right now. But my point being is that it looks like Clint Eastwood's character has died at the end. He sort of slumps over, and you think that's it, because Charlie Sheen surely thinks he's dead. But of yeah. course, then. He goes. He's he's now at work, and he's the he's the seasoned uh, copper, and uh, he goes to see his lieutenant, and turns out to be Clint Eastwood, and he's just like, okay, really, okay, <laughs> obviously, I don't know if it's true or not, but they probably said, oh, we can't have Clint Eastwood die. That be that be too much. We got to we got to have him live, and. Uh, yeah, so really bad, horrible ending uh, to a really bad, horrible film. No, I, I agree. I mean, I would have, as I said, I would have picked it. Um, it's, you know, it, it's it's got some amusing one-liners in it. It's got some great stunt work and whatever in it. But overall, I mean, it's kind of interesting. You know, the two films he did before this were Bird and, and White Hunter, Black Heart, which were both very personal films. And then... Yes the next two films he does are Unforgiven and A Perfect World. And it's kind of interesting that something like The Rookie was the sort of studio pleaser yeah. that was sort of stuck in the middle of, of those films. And um, uh, yet definitely not not his finest hour in terms of directing. But but you see pretty much everything that comes after that is, is you know, him pushing the, the envelope and, uh, you know, at the top of his game. And uh, yeah, I have to say, I like, think for this example, is, Million yeah. Dollar Baby, I just think it's an incredible film. You know, I, I almost chose that one when I was looking at the uh, movie Heaven. Um, you, you, you know, but but he continues to he continues to deliver, you know, uh, in all sorts of genres and types of film and companion pieces and biopics. I haven't seen American Sniper yet, so um, I'm curious to see what that one is like. Have you seen American Sniper? I have, I have, um, and you know, it, it, I, I enjoyed it. Um, a bit of an interesting backstory on it, which I don't want to say because it would it would spoil it for you. But I know it's I know it's divided no, a lot of people. There's been no escape opinion. from that backstory. I yeah. mean, that was one of the reasons why it, it there was a bit of controversy about it for a while. And yeah, I've I've heard it. I, you know, it was one of those things. I wasn't trying to avoid it. It's just it was there in my face, so I know what happens and the, the sort of the controversies about the the character that um, Bradley Cooper's betraying in this film. So did I say betraying? Portraying. <laughs> betraying. Right. He's betraying his character. Portraying. Yeah. Sorry. Portraying. 
no. And and you know, obviously that that when when he when they started working on this project, he was alive. So yeah. you, you know, it's 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 quite interesting. Um, you know, a great performance by Bradley Cooper in it. I have to say, um, you, you know, uh, very nicely done. But um, but you know, his films pretty much from Perfect World. Uh, sorry, from the rookie onwards, um, I think have, have been, you know, decent. I, I, I haven't had a problem with any of them. I think they, they go from strength to strength. I, I yeah. think um, I think this is sort of the last one he did for like one for them. And I think the rest have all been for him. Though I have to say, um, as our both our picks for movie hell were sort of police thrillers, I, I I don't know he, if Clint Eastwood was very good at directing those kind of films. I think as an observation I've made from watching these two films back to back that uh, maybe portraying cop characters he's very good, but actually directing those kind of films he's not. Mm, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that, but that's quite an interesting observation. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I'll think about that. But that's quite interesting. <laughs> Again, another reason I, I I like doing these um these podcasts with you because it's it's interesting to get a different perspective on some of this stuff sometimes, and uh, you you know to go back and revisit it and look at it from a from a different point of view. But you are you are correct. Yeah, both of them that we chose as the uh, the, the the movie Hell um, were the the, the 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 crime action films, yeah, which yeah. which. Oddly enough, uh, uh, you know, the things that he was initially sort of st well, established him anyway. Yeah. So, um, yeah, very interesting. Hmm. So that was our picks of uh, of movie heaven, movie hell for Clint Eastwood. I've enjoyed it. Uh, so let's wrap up uh, this episode uh, by asking Keith, uh, how can we um, see your stuff? How can we see your work? No problem. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you to you, Simon, because one of the things that doing these podcasts has made me finally get my act together and do is create a, um, you know, I've made all these films, but I hadn't, didn't really have them anywhere where they could be publicly seen. So I have created a YouTube channel and page. And um, also a thanks to Alex Brunning, who's, who's usually my editor on a lot of my films for uh, helping you know get the the digital versions and whatever to upload so if you go to youtube and you put in british isles that's e-y-l-e-s as in my surname um you will find the uh six short films that i've done um and yeah feel free to uh subscribe like comment get in touch whatever you want but it's all there to see and i will look to add things to it when i can Oh, so there's a direct link in the uh, description for uh, this podcast. Yes, thank you for that too. That's awesome. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> You're very welcome. And uh, you can see my work at uh, independentrunnings.com or search for Independent Runnings on uh, YouTube. Uh, we also have a Facebook page, which uh, I hope you go have gone and liked. And also check us out on Twitter. Uh, our handle name is at Movie Heaven Hell because Movie Heaven Hell um, was shorter than Movie Heaven Movie Hell. There you go. <laughs> Bloody Twitter. 
So, thank you for joining us for what's been the longest podcast oh, so has far. It? Okay. Uh, <laughs> we seem to be outdoing ourselves each time. Yeah. I knew this would be a long one, though, and I, we barely scratched yeah. the surface, really, with Clint. But there you go. <laughs> there you go. And uh, join us for our next episode uh, coming in two weeks' time. Okay. See ya. Bye.